Something's wrong with me. My life just doesn't work and I don't know how to make it work. I feel like I'm slipping into depression. I can't seem to shake this anxiety. The great M. Scott Peck said, Life is difficult. This is a great truth. One of the greatest truths. Welcome to the Vanessa Landino Podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Landino. It's good to be with you this week. I've had a busy summer so far. I hope that you all are enjoying this summer. Of course, if you are in the Southern Hemisphere and you're listening, then you are in winter. So if you are in winter, I hope it's a cozy one. It's been busy around here, um, but I have been joyfully, if I'm being honest, just really joyfully coming back to this podcast week by week. It's sort of a touchstone for me to put some thoughts together based on what I'm learning from my clients, what we're learning together, what we're working on, and what I think will reach you. Very often, I'm right there with you. I'm learning it in real time with you. I'm processing it in real time. And this week's podcast is near and dear to my heart. And I'll tell you why. People ask me a lot what I specialize in. First of all, new clients, if they come to therapy or they might give me a call to see if I'm the right therapist for them, and they'll say things like, well, what kinds of things do you specialize in? And if you're in the field of mental health and you're a clinician, meaning you have a clinical practice, you practice psychotherapy, you have to specialize in depression and anxiety because that's going to be 90% of the people that walk in the door. There's some element of a depressed mindset and anxious experience going on. So typically I will say, you know, I'm comfortable treating depression and anxiety. That's something I have a lot of experience with. And then over the 4th of July, Jared and I were out in California at his friend's annual 4th of July barbecue. They grew up together. And I was sitting outside under this gazebo and his friend came over and we were chatting, getting to know each other a little bit more. And he said, Vanessa, what do you specialize in? (laughs) Of course. And I was talking about, you know, depression and anxiety. And then I said, you know, if I'm being very honest, I think my specialization is the true self and the false self. And the whole energy of the conversation shifted. And he was like, what do you mean? And I said, well, You know, growing up, we are conditioned to act a certain way. Part of that conditioning is just so that we fit into society. Some of it is, you know, social norms, gender norms, societal expectations, family expectations. You have a role in your family system. So there's this conditioning that takes place. And so eventually over time, if we don't learn how to stay authentic to ourselves, we sort of split into a true self and a false self. And the true self is that person inside of us who wants and feels and needs in sort of an unedited way. It's just kind of who we were, say, when we were two. Uh, You know, most parents will roll their eyes and go, I don't want to be like I was when I was two because two-year-olds are hard. But my point is there's something free about that. Two, three, four, five, six. In those age ranges, children are very unedited and you can really see the personality. And yes, it needs to be parented and character needs to be built, but there's a purity to us. There's an unedited quality to us. We are authentic. And then as we grow and figure out what works, what doesn't work, what gets us attention, what gets us in trouble, we start going into what we call conditioning. And that develops the false self. And so a lot of what I do, again, this is at a 4th of July barbecue, friends, it is a burden (laughs) being in my brain sometimes. I think he just wanted a short answer. You know, you're laughing out there. He did want a short answer. And here I am expounding upon the true self and the false self at the 4th of July. But in my defense, he did seem really interested. And we had a great conversation about it. But I said, that's probably what I'm specializing in more than anything else, is just the ability to tease out the true self from the false self and learning how to live in the true self. 
And I would take that one step further. And I didn't go there with dear Scott, who had a three-year-old in his lap the whole time. (laughs) I think he's three. Uh, He might be a little younger. No, he's younger. Anyway, he had a little baby in his lap the whole time who was very cute. Um, But what I would say is this, friends, my sweet spot, and this is something I've had to walk out myself. And if you're out there doing your work, you're in therapy, or you're not in therapy, but you're reading books, you're journaling, you're trying to get to the root of yourself, your issues, you're trying to grow, okay? What we're eventually trying to do is develop the tools to live in reality. That's the goal, is to develop the tools for us all to be able to live in the reality of life and of our lives without slipping into denial, without lying, without going to unhealthy coping mechanisms. This really is it. And what's the first step? Well, we have to come out of denial, right? What really happened and happens in life? And this whole podcast, okay, I'm going to stop and pause here because we're five minutes in. The whole podcast today is going to be about managing your expectations because so much of the depression and anxiety that I see and that I have experienced is because we have unrealistic expectations about life. We think life should be easy. We really believe that life should be fun all the time, good all the time. It's like we're four-year-olds and we really believe that the people we love go on living forever and they never die, that pets never die, right? Children have this sort of match actually called the years of magical thinking, Friends, some of us don't outgrow that. And I'm going to unpack that today. Why do we not outgrow magical thinking? Why are we fully in adulthood and we're shocked when life is hard? We are just blindsided by the difficulties and the struggles that we face in our life. Number one, we don't know that life is not supposed to be easy and fun all the time. And number two, we can't connect our own behavior to it. We're just, we're blindsided. We're shocked. I can't believe this is happening to me. And what does that do? It sets us up for depression and anxiety when our expectations are not right. So today I want to talk about the real story of life, the real deal Some of it's going to be hard hitting. If you're an optimist, if you tend toward that way, some of today's just maybe will leave you a little bit bummed. If you're a pessimist, you're probably going to shrug your shoulders and go, see, I told you. (laughs) But I'm not a pessimist either, nor do I think I'm an optimist. The goal is to be a realist, okay? We need to be able to live in reality with the appropriate tools to do so. And let me tell you, that is the life's work. That takes an entire lifetime. You're not going to tool up for every situation in life by the ripe old age of 30, 35, or 40, or 45. It's not going to happen. You're going to be in your 60s coping with life, coping with difficulty in life, because guess what? That is life. Okay, let's dive in. So how do we develop the tools to live in reality? Well, the first thing we have to do is come into reality. And that means we have to come out of denial. What does that mean? Well, I could, I have done much longer podcasts about that. But what it means is that you're dealing with what really happened in your life and what's really happening in your life. And you're feeling your feelings about it. That's the important piece. You're not just accepting what's happening, you're accepting how you feel about it. Coming out of denial in therapy looks like this. So such and such is happening. Well, how do you feel about it? You know, it's a bummer. Um, You know, it's been really hard. It's taken everything. You know, it reminds me, hang on, hang on, hang on. 
I understand what you're saying and your thoughts are important, but how do you feel about it? I mean, I feel like I'm, you know, wishing this wasn't, okay, again, that's a thought. Your feelings, your emotions, how do you feel about it? And very often that moment in therapy, there's a shift in the energy and I'll get something like, I feel sad. Okay, now we're coming out of denial. Now we're allowing ourselves to be experiencing life in real time, not just from the head, with the heart. This is denial. We can be in mental denial, which is, I don't even want to admit what's going on. I refuse to name what's going on. That's like an intellectual denial. Or we can be in emotional denial, which is, yeah, this is going on, but I'm not even dealing with my feelings about it. I'm denying my feelings about it. Okay, so Coming out of denial is the first thing that puts us square into reality. What is happening? What has happened? How do I feel about it without resorting to coping mechanisms to medicate or numb out? Okay? We have to face ourselves. We have to face ourselves. What do I do? Meaning, what choices do I make day in and day out? What are my patterns? What are my habits? This can go to the basics like, Eating, drinking, sleeping, exercising. What choices do I make to career path? How I deal with people in conflict, okay? In a day, you're going to make a multitude of decisions about any number of things. How you take your coffee, what kind of sweetener or creamer or whatever you put in your coffee, whether or not you drink coffee in the morning, you drink tea, what kind of tea you drink. These are all choices, 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 choices all day long. And then you start interacting with people and now we have a whole other set of choices. So part of coming out of denial is being able to look at yourself in a day, for example, and say, this is what I do. Okay, maybe there's choices that you're making on the daily, on the weekly, on the monthly, on the yearly that you're not proud of. You don't like that you do this. Okay, now we're getting into what's called shadow work. I'm dealing with the parts of myself I don't like. I don't want to admit. Facing yourself means you're asking, why do I do this? What need is this meeting? No, it's not meeting a need. It's just a terrible, terrible choice. No, no, no. Hang on. It is meeting a need. Humans are need-based creatures. We are always trying to meet our needs through healthy and unhealthy ways. What need is being met by this behavior? It means you're facing your story. What happened to me? Good and bad. What met my needs? What didn't meet my needs? What built me up? What harmed me? And how did I cope? What coping mechanisms did I develop? Again, we're just talking about coming out of denial. Okay, what coping mechanisms did I develop to get through the hardship of my life? Are they working? Are they useful? Are they healthy? Okay, ultimately what we're doing when we're coming out of denial and coming into reality is we're saying, this is what's happening. This is what has happened. This is who I think I am, who I can observe myself to be. This is how I feel about all of the above. And we're replacing idealism with realism without losing hope or joy. This is so important. And if I could subspecialize, I would say I help people develop the tools to live in reality, to accept reality without losing hope or joy. Because it's a twisty road. When we start getting into our feelings, when we start really experiencing life in reality, it can be overwhelmingly difficult. There's sadness, there's grief, 
There's confusion. Why the heck did I choose that? We have to move through the confusion and wait for clarity. That's a hard process. We have to grieve losses we had no control over, grief that we have suppressed and stuffed for years. That's hard. So coming into reality has its own price. But we can do that without losing hope or joy. We can do that all the while believing that reality is where joy is. Some of us don't know how to find joy in reality, so we escape to fantasy or we slip into denial. This is where joy is. This is where I feel happiness when I'm not dealing with reality. Friends, the art of life, the absolute art of living life is to be in reality and find the joy in it. It's so cool. It's like vibrantly, vitally alive. I'm in reality. I'm dealing with my life as it is. I'm feeling my life as it is. And I can find the joy and the hope in it. And the joy is real and the hope is real. When we're living in in reality, we're looking at the reality of our marriages, our relationships, our family of origin, our current family, and our current joys and pains. I'm talking about being yourself in the real world, being your true self in the real world. And this is not easy. Why? Because we have to unlearn toxic and problematic coping mechanisms. And that's really hard. Because in order to do that, we generally have to deal with the reason why those coping mechanisms were developed, because in our brains, they're connected. The memory of a hurtful, harmful situation is connected to the coping mechanism you developed. And we have to unpack that and unravel it to unlearn the coping mechanism. Also, because people push back against us. You know, when you're in a role, when you're in a conditioned role, people are going to relate to you in that role. And when you start to break out of that, you're coming out of denial, you're coming into reality. People push back against that authenticity because they want someone in you who is colluding with their denial. So we're sitting around and my family, I'm going to get into a little bit of my family of origin today, but some of you who listen to this podcast knows this, but there, there's so much narcissism in my family of origin. It was in me. It's still in me in so many ways and I'm still working on it. It just, the apples don't fall that far from the tree and the narcissism in my family, I'm not going to, you know, condemn it because I have compassion. It was developed to cope with some really, really challenging uh, childhood stories. My parents were raised in very, very difficult environments, very different environments, but difficult. And they both developed a narcissistic personality style to cope with their hardship. Okay. So we're all sitting around and we're, you know, reconnecting. It's Thanksgiving weekend and we're all, you know, just telling stories or whatever. And one member of the family tells this outrageous story, like this outlandish story about being sent away to a farm. And I'm listening to this and I'm like, this didn't happen. This literally did not happen. I remember our childhood enough to know that this did not happen. So this was a point in my recovery And in my work, when I was just sort of tired of these lies and I was tired of the stories that the family tells, and I watched the looks on people's faces in the room who I knew, like I knew my name, that they don't remember this. Nobody believes her. Why is she telling this story? So I decided to speak up. And again, I don't know if this was the best thing to do. It sort of started up, it stirred up a hornet's nest, but I decided to speak up and I was like, does anyone remember this? 
And you should have seen the looks on people's faces. It was like absolute horror. Why? Because the whole family was totally conditioned to collude with lies. Stories were told, narratives were fabricated out of thin air. I did it too. And everybody was expected to collude with it. Now, this is an extreme case of pathological lying and narcissism. Hello, welcome to my childhood. (laughs) But the point is, is that when you are in your inauthentic self, when you're in your conditioned role, people are used to you in that place. It's a system. It's a cycle. Everybody's colluding with that role. Whether you're in, I'm going to say a little bit about family roles today, you're in the hero role. Everybody colludes. Oh, you know, Jake will fix it. Betsy is going to fix it for us. When you're in the scapegoat role, everyone colludes. Oh, you know, Billy's just a waste. He's just a tragedy. He just can't figure it out. You know, Laverne over here is just never could get her act together and everybody colludes. And when you're coming out of denial and you're coming into reality, you start speaking up and you start thinking differently. We're like, wait a second. I don't see it that way anymore. Laverne's been crapped on in this family the entire time. No wonder she can't get it together. What are you talking about? We don't crap on Laverne. (laughs) I never thought in my life I'd say that sentence. But anyway, do you see what I mean? You're going to get pushback. They're going to push back against your coming into reality because everybody colludes in denial. So learning to be authentic, which is to be healthy and strong-minded, means by default, that you have to release the need for validation and approval because you're going to get pushback. And I'm here to tell you, this takes years of work. This is also called adulthood. Why? Because so much suffering is the result of being raised to believe or you have come to believe that your life should be happy all the time. So when you experience pushback or suffering in any part of your life, you're like, what's wrong? Something must be wrong. If I'm not happy all the time, there is either something wrong with me or something wrong with the world. Friends, there's nothing wrong with you necessarily, and there's not necessarily something wrong with the world. We're going to talk today about managing expectations. You've got to set your expectations realistically. Life is suffering. All right. So a little bit about my backstory. I mentioned this. I'm raised by two very narcissistic people, different types of narcissism. One was more covert, one was more overt. But everything in my life growing up was fantasy. There was very little truth, very little groundedness in like reality and truth. So let's talk a little bit about the narcissistic personality style and a narcissistic system in a family. If this applies to you, listen up, okay? The development of fantasy thinking which is associated with narcissism. Again, we have grandiose ideas about the self. Life should be beautiful and exceptional, and I should be beautiful and exceptional in it. And we are the exceptional family, and we're the different ones, and you're the different one, and you need to rise above, and I am separate and different. There's this sense of like grandiose exceptionalism in a narcissistic family, okay? What that is, is it's the development of a fantasy mindset because the person who developed it is escaping from a wound. There is some wound that is so painful, deep and dark that they have to create a whole fantasy world where everything is beautiful. It's like a castle on a hill. They have to create this fantasy world so that they don't feel that wound. And then in that fantasy world, they create a fantasy persona. So they're the hero. 
they're the beautiful hero or the heroine of their own story. Now, what does that create on the flip side? Well, on the upside, narcissists can be very heroic and magnanimous. They can, because they see themselves that way. They're the hero in the fantasy story of the castle on the hill. The flip side of that is they can be chronic victims when people don't see their goodness or their efforts, or they challenge the fantasy. They will explode against people who are in reality. Why? Because they can't face the truth of the world because it will lead them back to the wound. Okay, that's the inner psychology of narcissism. It all comes from that wound. So that allows us to be more compassionate with ourselves if we have narcissistic features and with others if they have narcissistic features because it's a coping mechanism. It's born out of a wound. Now, this is not a podcast about narcissists, but that doesn't mean we have to interact with these people on the daily. They're very toxic, but it does mean that we can understand them and have compassion for them, okay? In a narcissistic system and in my family system, lies and fantasies were rampant. So what did that set us up for? Fantasy expectations. I expected my life to be exceptionally cool, exceptionally special, exceptionally successful, because I was taught that life is a castle on a hill and that's where you should try and live. That's where you should strive to be. It's up here where everything is beautiful and you're the heroine. Okay. Now I lied as a way of life. I saw my parents lie. I caught my parents in more lies than I could ever count, more than I could ever confront. I tried confronting. That did not go well. (laughs) P.S. I remember one time when I was in third grade, I told my third grade class, maybe someone in the class, whatever, that I went to Hawaii for the weekend with my dad. Friends, I was raised in New Jersey. I grew up on the Jersey Shore. Do you know how far Hawaii is from the Jersey Shore? Of course, I had like no concept of plane trips and time zones. Like, yeah, you can pop over to Hawaii from Jersey in a weekend. But I was trying to create this fantasy. Now I look back on myself at that time and I realize how distant I felt from my father even at that age. I couldn't touch him. I couldn't get to him. I couldn't reach his heart. It was impossible. I still can't. But I remember coming up with stories that positioned me in a place where I was beloved by him. Do you see? I was telling a lie. And the essence of the lie was that I wanted to be beloved by him. I wanted him to whisk me away. I wanted him to like daddy-daughter dates, those things that dads do with daughters that communicate that they're special to them. I was craving that from my father. So I created this silly story. But again, I was already in the narcissistic system. I was already in the castle on the hill. What a castle on the hill story, right? Now, growing up, I was living mostly in fantasy. And then I got into my adult years and I'm living half in fantasy and half in reality because the cold, hard truths of life are coming at me fast. And then my divorce and the failure of my marriage in my early 30s was the freezing cold blast of water I needed to finally close up, put the last nail in the coffin of denial that I'd been living in. So I... I'm seeing a new therapist during that time. And I sat down and I didn't want to waste time. So I said, all right, I'm going to give you my life story in in 10 minutes. And he said, go. And I told him my life story. I think it took 12. I timed myself. I think, you know, just, okay, I was born here. Of course, there were more details than that. But I wanted to give him an overview because I really wanted to get to work. And he said nothing during that time, except when I told him what happened during the divorce. And I said these words, everything I thought that I was shattered. And without pausing, without taking a breath, he said, best thing that ever happened to you. And it took me years to figure out, first of all, that that was true. And secondly, what he meant. 
Because I was raised to believe that by virtue of my personality, charm, whatever it was, I was my mother's golden child. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. Family roles and how they set us up for false expectations. But I really believed that I was like the exception to all the rules. This was part of my own narcissism. And that I could just sort of charm my way through life. Why? Because I charmed my way through my family. That's just how I thought life worked. Boy, was that a blast of cold air when I realized that actually sometimes that does work, but it very often does not work with real people. But those were the people I wanted to be in relationship with. So I couldn't be this fake person and have the relationships that I wanted. Now, I'd been raised to believe you can be anything you put your mind to. Friends, that is not true. Again, I'm going to burst some bubbles here today. It's not true. A friend of mine married an Olympic swimmer. He won the gold medal in Olympic swimming. And he told me, Vanessa, I'm asked to speak all the time. I go to high schools and colleges. Oh, give these kids an inspirational speech. And they want me to tell them that no matter what obstacles are in your way, if you are hardworking and driven and you put your mind to it, you can achieve your dreams. And he's like, I have to stand up and tell them the truth. You can't. I was in the pool with guys who worked twice as hard as I did. Their diets were cleaner. Their sleep schedules were better. They were more disciplined. They worked twice. Now, he worked hard. He was, he's an Olympic gold medalist, but he was in the pool with guys that he saw working harder, training harder. They didn't have his speed. He said, Vanessa, it's genetic. Look at the size of my hands. Look at the size of my feet. Like I have flippers. <laughs> it's genetic. His lungs can hold more oxygen because they're bigger. So we can't be anything we put our minds to, okay? I remember reading a quote once online. If you've got a camera, you can be Spike Lee. If you've got a microphone, you can be Christina Aguilera. Again, I understand what people are trying to say, you know, dream and believe in your dreams, but that's not true. You may not have the talent to do what these people do. That doesn't mean that you don't have special gifts, but it may mean that you need to grieve that you don't have what it takes to make it in a field you really want to make it in. Friends, this is what I'm talking about. This is part of life. Grieving that other people are more talented than we are. Grieving that the gifts given to humankind are not always given fairly. They're not. Some of us were raised to believe that the world is beautiful and if you're good, people will be wonderful to you. I'm so sorry. That is not true. People are calloused. People are unfeeling. People's wounds sometimes render them incapable of behaving well toward others. People can be vengeful. People can be cruel. People sometimes will not see your goodness and therefore react to it. Do you see how it's a fantasy world? We're not living in reality. So that's a little bit of my story, okay? You can do this. You can do that. Vanessa, whatever you need to do, my legacy to you is you can live. You too can live on the castle on the hill. It's like my parents were real estate agents. They're selling us a castle on the hill. And what I realized in my life is not only can I not afford it, I'm not willing to do what it takes for that castle on the hill. I'm not willing to live in denial that way. But number two, I don't want to live in a castle on the hill. I want a house on the street. I want to live in reality. So let's talk about other ways, because that's my backstory. Other ways our expectations become skewed and we enter adulthood with these false expectations that sets us up. It sets us up 
for emotional and mental distress. Okay? Think of a little kid. And you tell the kid, oh, you're getting ready to go to school. You're getting ready to go to school. You're starting first grade. Well, guess what? Every single morning when you go into school, they're going to give you candy and then you're going to have a pony ride. Every single morning, you're going to have candy and then a pony ride, and then you're going to get your very, very favorite thing for lunch. How do you think the kid feels when they actually go to school? Where's my pony ride? That's what I'm going to title this podcast. (laughs) Where's my pony ride? Where's my candy? They're giving us tuna fish. I wanted pizza, right? Because you can't set a kid up that way. But how many of us We're set up to think that life would be easier than it actually is financially, relationally, emotionally. You know, the first chapter of my book, The Toolbox, that I just put out, the first chapter of the book is called The Right Mindset. Like before we get into any communication tools, before we break down relationships in general, the first tool you need to have a successful relationship is the right mindset. You need to know how hard this is going to be. You need to understand that once the dopamine wears off in your brain, meaning you fell in love and then you fell out of love, once that dopamine wears off, the real work begins. The real work of loving, communicating, bypassing your ego, putting somebody else's needs ahead of your own, developing boundaries. I mean, all of the tools that are chapters 2 through 12 only happen when you have the right mindset first. Some of us were raised in religious homes where being a good person meant you would never suffer. Now, I'm going to say a little bit about this in a minute. This is literally in direct contrast to every single religious tradition known to man. It is literally in direct contrast to every single traditional spiritual way of life known to man. Any set of beliefs. This is not in keeping with any of them. But somehow through time, through spoken words through fantasy combining with reality, we've come to this place where we believe that if we're a good person, we'll never suffer. Now, I've worked with these people in therapy. This was not my story. This is not what I was taught, but I've worked with these folks and they're solid people. They're really good people. They make good decisions. They're reliable. They're responsible. They're like decent, good members of society. And if life were fair, they wouldn't suffer. But this is a false belief. It's a false expectation that if you're good enough, you won't suffer. It's not true. If we were raised in a family where we were never taught to directly confront or speak about conflict and pain, we were set up poorly. This is the family that sees life through rose-colored glasses, sugarcoats everything. Nothing's a problem. Everything's wonderful. Everything's beautiful. What happens? Well, the cause is the problem. The cause is that there's no coping mechanisms for suffering and pain. When suffering and pain come, we don't know what to do with it, so we just pretend it doesn't exist. It's okay. It's all good. We're good. Everything's great. Just set that aside. Focus on the good. Okay? There's no coping mechanisms for pain. There's no coping mechanisms for suffering. So what gets passed down is life can be conflict-free if we simply avoid it and act like it doesn't exist. That's a false expectation. That is not congruent with how real life works. 
Maybe we were raised in an intellectual family in which everything had a solution. We know these families. There's no reason to suffer because we can think ourselves out of this. What does that do? It creates a false expectation that if you're smart enough, you can outsmart suffering. This is also not true. This is not true. This is denial. It's sophisticated denial. It's a very impressive form of denial, but it is still flat out denial. That is not true. Family roles, and this is where I'm going to say a little bit about family roles, they can set our expectations for life. We think life will mimic our family. We think life is going to put us in the same way, in the same place, in the same role as our family of origin. So the hero role, okay? The hero role in the family is the most successful one. It's very often the firstborn. The hero carries the burdens of the family in a way that the other children don't. They're usually privy to the deepest suffering of the parents, The parents tell the hero or show the hero how bad it really is. And so the hero shoulders the burden. And very often the way that they handle that burden is they become overachievers. If I can just create enough success, if I possess enough competency, I can get, you know, my myself out of this suffering. I can outwork my suffering. My success means that I and my family won't suffer. I'm more capable or more successful than others, so I can stave off suffering because of my strength, because of my know-how. That's the hero. Okay, do you see how that sets up the hero child for an unrealistic expectation in life? If you keep being the hero, then you can keep suffering outside the door. Not true. Not true. There are prices to pay bodily, relationally, and socially for that mindset. But the hero child has that expectation that if I keep being the hero, I won't have to suffer. The golden child, okay? The golden child very often is the favorite of the mother. They're the one who can do no wrong. Oh, you know, some people actually say this explicitly, you know, so-and-so has always been my favorite. This makes me cringe. Cringe. It's so unhealthy to say that about any child. It's terribly unhealthy for the other children who are like, well, great. We just got shafted, but it's very unhealthy for the golden child. The golden child is the apple of the mother's eye. Very often it can be the father, but very often the golden child is meeting the mother's needs emotionally. And therefore the mother who is not getting her needs met in the relationship, in the partnership, or she could be a single mom, the golden child is meeting the mother's needs emotionally. And so the mother has a special place in her heart for the golden child and the golden child can do no wrong. The rules are different for the golden child. They don't suffer as many consequences as the other children. The mother is usually easier on the golden child. Why? Because the golden child is meeting her emotional needs. So she can't afford to alienate the golden child. Does that make sense? Now, what does the golden child develop as a result? The unrealistic expectation of life that they are above suffering. Others may suffer, but I won't because I'm special. The rules of life are different for me. Now, none of this is typically said explicitly, but it is absolutely communicated through action. And in very unhealthy cases, it is said explicitly, which is kind of a gift because then you don't have to do any guesswork. It's like, okay, this was said out loud. But if you're the golden child in your family system, if you were... If you were mommy's favorite, if you were the one that mommy always turned to, if you sort of stood in the gap 
for the spouse. In other words, emotionally, you were the surrogate spouse. You were meeting all those emotional needs. You were the companion. You were the confidant. You were the one who mom was saying, do I look good in this? Am I a bad mother? Am I a good mother? Right? They're seeking validation, seeking approval, seeking affirmation from the golden child. You probably go through life thinking that you're special above the rules and that suffering will not befall you because you're special. And I'm here to say you are special, but you're not so special that you're not going to suffer in life. Maybe you're the baby of the family. Vanessa, raise your hand. (laughs) Okay. The baby of the family was coddled. They're kept safe by being kept small. The baby of the family usually has a hard path in life of becoming right-sized because they will typically make themselves smaller than they are. Because why? They were the baby. So the baby believes others will protect me. I don't have to suffer because others will protect me. And I can escape suffering by playing small and helpless so that others will rescue me. This was my life. Maybe you relate. The false expectation in all of this is the belief that you can control life. You can control life by being good, by being smart, by being the hero, by being special and exceptional, by other people rescuing you. You can control life in such a way that you won't have to suffer. Now, here's the realistic expectation. I cannot control life. I can control myself in life. And this is the transcendence that we experience in reality. Life will at times be unpredictable and cruel, but I can control myself in it. Viktor Frankl, for those of you who don't know, he wrote a famous book called Man's Search for Meaning. He was a prisoner in a concentration camp and came to find tremendous meaning and has gone on to say things like, when you understand the reason for your struggle, when you understand the meaning in your struggle, it ceases to be painful. I mean, he will go as far as that, okay? This is a quote. When we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances to choose one's own way. And that can never be taken from anyone. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the ancient traditions. Very briefly, I'm going to skim this, but I'm going to make a point here. Because we're set up for false expectations when we believe that we can do anything in life to escape suffering. The only thing you can do in life to escape suffering is dying. And I'm not advocating for suicide, and I'm certainly not saying we should all just be approaching our death with joy. Life is about living. But so much of what creates the despair that we feel in life is because we didn't know it was going to be hard. We were sold a bill of goods. Now, Buddhism, the four noble truths, the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the end of suffering, and the truth of the path toward the end of suffering. Those are the four noble truths, okay? The truth of suffering, suffering is. You are going to suffer. That is a truth. The cause of suffering, typically in Buddhism, it's known to be attachment or desire. The end of suffering is detachment or the end of desire, and the path is the path of Buddhism and the way of life of Buddhism. What do all of these noble truths have in common? I'm going to say them again. The truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the end of suffering, the truth of the path toward the end of suffering. What do you keep hearing? 
okay? Suffering. Let's take Christianity. These are the words of Jesus. I have told you these things. And in that, this is John 16. He's going on and on and on about how they're going to suffer. How they're going to be put out of the synagogue. You're going to, people who kill you will think they're doing a service to God. That's not just suffering. That's murder. Okay? I've told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. And then he says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You will have trouble. I am always amazed that Christians, and I've counseled so many through the years, and I've talked to so many, and I know so many, I'm amazed that Christians are shocked when they suffer. Like, how are you a disciple of Jesus, a Christian, a follower of Jesus, a man who was in that faith system, put to death, who was sinless? He was tortured and put to death, and Christians will believe that he was sinless. And you follow him, and he has said, come and follow me and take up your cross and follow my way of life. And you think that somehow, by following a man who suffered, you are going to escape suffering? That doesn't even make sense. It's like, follow me, do what I do. I ride horses. Oh, but I never want to get on a horse. Okay, well, then you can't follow me (laughs) because I ride horses. Jesus is quoted, I think in the book of Hebrews, as saying a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, but his followers are absolutely shocked when they suffer. How does that work? Suffering is a fact of life. Judaism. Do we all know what the word Israel means? Israel. Do we know what that means? It means to wrestle with God, to contend with God. The assumption of Judaism is that you will wrestle, you will contend, you will hurt, it will be hard, there will be suffering. Okay, the entire book of Job is dedicated to a man who suffered needlessly. Needlessly. Read the first two chapters of Job. The whole setup of Job is like a cosmic debate between God and Satan about testing the righteousness of Job. How far can we push him before he sins? The whole book is about an innocent man who suffers for no good reason. And there's like a cosmic war going on between good and evil to see how far he can go. And the story just gets worse and worse. He loses his wife. He loses his kids. Then his whole body is covered in boils. He loses his house, his goats, his sheep, everything. He loses his fortune. And of course, at the end of the story, he gets it all back. But that's built in. Job is what we call wisdom literature. Okay, there's three parts of the Jewish Bible, the law, wisdom, and prophecy. In the wisdom column is Job, suffering, apparently unearned, undeserved. Okay, so again, I told you I was going to skim through this. I could go on. These are huge ancient traditions. These are the, you know, the enduring truths, whether you actively participate in them or not. These are the truths that are forming a lot of the society we live in. Okay, these ancient truths are all around us, and all of them point towards suffering as a way of life, as a reality of life. So we're going to have to do a little reality testing with ourselves this week. That's what we call it in cognitive behavioral therapy. We're going to have to do a little reality testing. We're going to have to test what we thought life is against what life really is. Now, some of us are idealists, and those are people who see the world 
as we think it should be. Okay, we see a better world. And very often we're like in wide-eyed shock at how people behave. We're in absolute dismay and we're horrified by the unfairness of life. If we are, we're idealists. Some of us are optimists. Okay, we see the potential in every situation. We see the goodness present in even the most unpleasant and painful situations. And we, if we're optimists, we see the outcome as inevitably good. But both optimists and idealists can be naive. Why? Because idealists can see the world as it should be, which means they can't see the world as it is. It's built-in denial. Optimists refuse to see the dangers, the impediments, because they're focused on what's good and what's potential. Okay? Now, some of us are cynics. We see the crookedness in the world. We see potential for harm at every turn. We're looking for the badness in people. We're looking for the darkness. And I will promise you that if you look for the badness, you will find it. And that just reinforces the cynicism. Now, some of us are pessimists. We see the challenges of life as a decree that we're going to fail. Pessimists typically can't see the hope in any situation. They can only see the inevitably bad outcome. And both cynics and pessimists can be deluded. They're not living in reality either because they cannot see the good. They easily miss opportunities for growth and opportunities for advancement, for success, whatever it is, because they can't see that challenges are also potentialities. Now let's talk about the realists. The realists are living life on life's terms. When I was growing up, I grew up mostly in the 80s. And then my teen years were kind of in the 90s. Remember that show, The Facts of Life? Remember the opening song? You take the good, you take the bad, you take them both, and there you have the facts of life. Facts of life, right? You take the good, you take the bad, you take them both, and there you have the facts of life. That's it. End of podcast. (laughs) That's the wisdom for today, the facts of life. Okay? But that's reality. Our expectations of ourselves versus our expectations of the world get all backwards if we've been raised to live in fantasy, okay? We get it backwards. We have very high expectations of the world. We have very high expectations of life and how others should treat us, but we are unprepared and have undefined expectations of ourselves. That's backwards. The realistic way of thinking is we have solid expectations of ourselves, our behavior, our values, our principles, And we accept that the world is often unpredictable and strange. That's the right way. We get it backwards. We want life to be predictable, but we don't know how we're going to react in it. And what we need to be thinking is, I know who I am. I'm in reality with myself and I can't predict life. Life may be hard. Life may be great, but I can control myself in it. Ultimately, what this comes down to, friends, is living as a victim versus living life empowered. The most disempowered position you can take is unrealistic. Why? Because you're unprepared. Like our little buddy who's going to first grade and thinks that every day is going to be pony rides and ice cream. Some of us really think life should be pony rides and ice cream. And it's not. It's not. It's disempowered to be unrealistic. It's disempowered to be unprepared. And then when we're disempowered, we fall into the victim role. And we say things like, why me? Why is this happening to me? I'm a good person. This isn't fair. And we get jealous and we get envious. Why does so-and-so have this? Why does she get the nice house? Why does he get the great job? If we're living life empowered, we're living life as a victor. That mindset is life is going to be hard. And when it's hard, I can handle it. 
I am going to meet with challenges in the world and challenges in myself. And when I do, I will handle them. And when I can't handle it myself, I have help. I have support. When I'm suffering, I realize that suffering is a normal part of being alive. Now, how is this connected to mental health? Because when we are disconnected from reality, meaning our expectations of life are either optimistic or pessimistic, friends, we're setting ourselves up for depression and anxiety. You know, one of the skills that you learn when you become a counselor is called, and it's a very light, easy skill to learn, but it's called normalization. And it means that you're communicating to the client in the therapy session that what they're experiencing is normal. Why? Because the expectations aren't right. That's why normalization is even required. It's why it's necessary because so often we have unrealistic expectations of ourselves. I should be able to be good and right and strong and powerful all the time. We have no concept that we're going to suffer internally to grow. And we have unrealistic expectations of life. You know, we are shocked and dismayed and horrified at the things going on in our lives. And we're not connecting that like that is life. Life is unpredictable. You don't get to decide what you get at the outset. You can decide who you are as you go. So it's connected to our mental and emotional health because we blame ourselves when life is hard. I'm not good enough. I'm not successful enough. I didn't do enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. And then we blame others when life is hard. And that sets us up for the comparison trap. Life's not fair. Why does he get all the shiny new toys? Why does she get all the shiny new toys? Other people are crooks and cheats. That's how they get ahead, right? So it it, it creates strife and we don't grow. And we suffer with emotional distress because we're shocked that our lives are as hard as they are. We're shocked that it is as hard as it is to get ahead. Oh, some people just have it so easy. And we lived thinking it could and should be easy. And maybe it is for some people. And I promise you that they have hardship in other areas that you don't have. But where your hardship is, you can either be a victim or a victor. And this is the whole power of, I love his name, Victor Frankel. He is indeed a victor. Remember that line from The Princess Bride? Life is pain. Anyone who tells you differently is selling something. Friends, when we lack the tools to navigate hardship and we get stuck in our resistance to it, we will not grow and we will slip into depression and anxiety. Why? Because we don't have the tools. We don't know how to dig in and find it within ourselves, and find it within our support system. I'm not saying you have to do it alone. You can't do it alone. But we don't know how to dig in and we lack the tools and we're fighting reality instead of growing, instead of the fight being, I'm going to become who I need to be to navigate the situation. We're just mentally fighting the situation itself. Why am I in this? We're stuck. But what if we said instead, this is my reality. This is reality. This is life. The good, the bad. You take the good, you take the bad, you take them both. There you have the facts of life. (laughs) Okay. This is reality. How much of this was and is in my control and how much of this was and is out of my control? We have to take responsibility for the ways that we've created our own reality. But then we also need to be able to say, look, I've done my best and life is hard. How many times have you heard me say this on this podcast? Say it with me. Life is hard and the road is long. That's why I say it so often. Because we have to manage our expectations. 
we ask, what is in my control? Let me focus on that. So I'm going to wrap up with two areas of life that are in your control. Your effort and your attitude. Your effort is what you do. The choices you make, learning, growing, how you invest yourself in the time of your life, meaning the hours you spend, your relationships, who's worth it, what relationships are worth your time, what pursuits are worth your time, and the investment of your energy. What pursuits in relationship are worth the energy that it takes to grow them and maintain them. That's in your control. Your attitude is in your control, which is basically how you go about living your life, the thoughts and feelings that you bring to your life. Are they positive? Are they negative? Do you see potential in obstacles or do you just see yourself as stuck or do you just sit down and cross your arms and say life isn't fair? Are you looking for paths of growth or are you looking at roadblocks as if something is wrong? Friends, the roadblocks are always on the path. The path is not clear. There are rocks, stones, trees to cut down, mountains to climb, and then sometimes it's clear. Ultimately, the mentally healthy person is living in reality and experiencing him or herself in reality. Who am I in this situation? What does the situation call out of me? How do I grow? You know, when I was very young, uh, I was 23 or 24 or something when I started therapy and I had this really sweet therapist in Manhattan. Her name was Mary Coonan. She's probably still there. She was so compassionate and kind. And one day I was bawling, I'm sure, about something. And she said, you know, Vanessa, in the Eastern traditions, there's a different assumption than in the Western traditions. In the Eastern traditions, people assume that life is hard. So when it's not, they're grateful and they celebrate. In the Western traditions, we assume life should be good. And so when it's not, we panic. What a lesson that was for me in my 20s. Because it reset my expectations that, oh, you mean half or more than half the world doesn't assume that life should be happy, fuzzy, and free? Huh. Well, they seem to be getting on. Okay. Friends, we have to reset our expectations. I'm going to read the entire quote that I started with. This is Peck's entire quote. Life is difficult. This is a great truth. One of the greatest truths. But then he goes on. It is a great truth because once we truly see this truth, we transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult because once it is accepted, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. This is the goal. This is mental strength. This is emotional health. When you can get to a place where you shrug your shoulders and you go, yeah, life is difficult. What of it? Moving on. It's just part of life. What an empowered place to be. All right. We'll stop there. Thank you for listening. Thank you for engaging. Thank you for the emails. Again, if you want to email me about the podcast, it's thepodcast at vanessalondino.com. You can follow me on Instagram. I'm at Vanessa the Therapist. Wonderful to be with you. I hope today was helpful. I know it was helpful for me. I need a reminder of all of these things to live in reality and deal with life, as they say in AA, on life's terms. Thank you again. If you want to buy the toolbox, the link is in the show notes. So just click on the show notes and you're going to get the link. If you've read the toolbox, please leave a review on Amazon. Would love to hear from you. And remember, your soul work. 
is to discover who you truly are and learn how to love that human being that's loving yourself in reality. Till next time. This podcast is recorded in Nashville, Tennessee and edited by Jared Bentley. I'm Vanessa Londino and you just listened to the Vanessa Londino podcast.